I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. The way they look at each other. Macho Miles. Can we talk about Dixon Ticonderoga? I ship this. It's too sweet for Murphy. <laughs> I was like little sitcom hand clap. On today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 24, Facts or Fiction. Guys, it's Lauren. Before we start, just want to say we had some technical issues with my end of the conversation. So apologies for that. Enjoy. Welcome to. An episode that pretty much should be about, I don't know, the cotton gin? What? <laughs> Something that no one uses anymore. I mean, you know, it was um, invented a long nope, time I... ago and people use the cotton gin. I mean, that's a bad thing. Something that is considered old timey. I was going to say, I just used a fax machine today. So, okay. Um... Well, to the people who are of the younger generation of us, how about that? Should people who are, are younger than us. And don't work in an office. This does seem That's very true. archaic. Although every every office I've worked in, the only thing that they came across the facts, and this is only my experience, were like, mm-hmm. you know, telemarketers. No, every office I've worked in, there's regular, and part of this might be because I've worked a lot in the hospitality industry, but there's a lot mm. of times people paying for other people and wanting to send their information in a way that's not email or text and don't want to say it over the phone for whatever reason. Because uh, they want it on, you know, documented with a signature or something like that. Mm-hmm. Working with like apartment work and stuff like that. Anytime you have a co-signer of a certain generation, signing things online gets very confusing. So they'd rather go to a Kinko's and fax it. I forget what it was. And I think that it might have been John Oliver. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe I can't remember this. And I'm sure someone will tweet it. But where they showed a commercial from like 1994. And it was like, Microsoft, mm-hmm. what the future will be. It was like, do you want to send a fax on the beach? And it was a guy with a giant <laughs> palm pilot sending what yes, looks like an email. Yes, talking about. Right? And it, yes. it, they went, yeah. oh, actually, they, they got it right. Like, kind of that yeah. commercial is kind of what the future is. Also, yeah, they're not I re- wrong. I recently read Alan Zweibel's biography, which is lovely. Oh, yeah. And he talks about when he and Gary Shengling were creating the Gary Shengling show. They were writing mm-hmm. on different coasts. And it was hard to, you know, get those pages to each other. And FedEx mm-hmm. offered something where it was like 24-hour shipping. And they were like, well, that's impossible. Like, how could that happen? And they realized now is that they had an early fax machine. And you would bring it to like, mm-hmm. you know, the FedEx or the Kinko's. Well, I guess it wasn't FedEx Kinko's at the time. But one of those places in New York. And he's mm-hmm. thinking they're shipping it. But what they were doing was they were faxing it. And the hour time was finding someone to deliver it to Gary in LA. Yep. Yep. And I went, wow, that's a little piece of minutia. I would have never known that people yeah. were doing. It was so interesting. It's even the fun stuff about like the idea that we've talked about with casting with like, if they didn't, if they weren't using VHS tapes, tapes, if they had the self tape submission that we have now, uh, Grant may never have been picked for miles because of the technology at the time. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Well, obviously, the fax, which is short for facsimile, has a really amazing history going all the way back to the telegraph, which we won't go into, which is very cool. But the reason that, you know, when you think of the 90s, you think of a fax machine is because uh, what we know as a fax machine really wasn't, I would say, invented till like about 1985. And then if you think about the trajectory of that, it makes sense that probably by the late 80s, early 90s is when everyone had them in their offices, I would assume. Yeah. 
So this episode is written by freelance people because there are so many episodes this season. Somebody needs a break. Yes, it was written by Deborah Marco Klein and Chris R. Westfall. And it aired April 30th, 1990. Now, the song is a song that I think a lot of people probably know. It's by the Marvelettes. It's very famous. It's called Beachwood 45789. Mm-hmm. So Beachwood 45789 is interesting because that is also an archaic version of communication. In this mm-hmm. episode, I don't think that's on purpose because it's it's a song about calling someone, someone that you mm-hmm. probably have a crush on, I would assume, as most of these songs are about. Um, but if people aren't aware, before you had... Uh, area codes and the beginning of the phone number, you had areas. So Beachwood would have been an area. So if you ever watch an old movie and they're like, give me uh, Sunnyside 562, which I don't even think is an exchange, <laughs> but they were called exchanges. And then eventually they became numbers. I assume because there were just too many numbers to give out. I, You know, that's not really anything I thought that we would go into. It just sort of came into my brain. Um, but this song was written by Marvin Gaye. It is actually his songwriting debut. Yeah. It was a hit in 1962 for the Marvelettes, which is one of the groups mentioned in the pilot. It is one of the girl groups that Murphy idolizes. It was on the Tamla label. Many people know the 1982 hit by the Carpenters, apparently. I had never heard of this because... Mm-hmm. I am more of a fan of Motown than the Carpenters, but apparently it was a very successful song. My family loved the Carpenters. I know both versions. Oh, so you do. Oh, awesome. So when mm-hmm. here's a question. Which one do you think of first? Oh, Motown. Motown. Okay. Yes. No, I think of oh, yeah. Like in my hometown, we never used the the prefix of the of the phone number. Like I, because our entire town was the same one. It's not like in New York where you have 917-347-718, like all of those ones. So you would need to use the the first three numbers. You just use two, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Because you don't need to know the prefix because everyone has the same. So this is the idea that there probably aren't that many phone numbers. And so you just need the area, which is BE, and then four, five, seven, eight, nine. Nowadays, the BE would be turned into two, three. This is also back when you would um, call an operator. <sighs> I, I, that's what I was going to say earlier. It's like the operators ran out of plugs. That's true too. I'm, I don't. I hope that there's some people out there that remember the little little plugs or have seen old movies that you 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 know put the little plug in and that's how it connected people mm-hmm. to their to their correct party. Or people know Lily Tomlin because of her character yep. on Laughing, mm-hmm. who's the telephone operator. One ringy dingy. Otherwise, I'm just <laughs> speaking in another language. If someone doesn't understand that. But it was funny when you mentioned about not having to put in an area code because everyone in your town had the same area code. In New Jersey, at a certain point, when I was very young, we got a new area code because there were just too many numbers. So we changed area codes when I was a child. And apparently, at my number in a different area code after we changed was another girl named Lauren, but she was a teenager. Oh, so my parents say that I used to get calls from boys when I was a very small child looking for her. And the only memory that I have, and I must have been young but old enough to take phone calls, is that I got offered a job at the bank. Hmm. And I was like, sir, I am six. <laughs> uh, so shall we start the episode? So we open on the aforementioned Beachwood 45789. Uh, And we have a montage of what appears to be communication through time going from original, I assume, drum circle smoke signals uh, in what appears to be a stage reenactment of other cultures uh, up through today. So we kind of get to what is modern times for the show. 
hinting at what we are about to discuss, which is the the very shiny new fax machine. It reminds me of when, you know, all of a sudden Murphy has a television. Like, yes. That wasn't there for the last 20 episodes, and now it's in prime position. Yep, it is. Uh, suddenly, that fax machine is just in the center of the office. And apparently the most important thing in the office, uh, because we open on Frank coming right in. He needs the fax machine. He won't stop saying he needs the fax machine. Corky is at the fax machine doing the thing where you're using the top of it as like your sorting center before you send something. And he's telling her Corky can do her thing later. And then he starts doing the really annoying thing where he's like tapping the fax machine. I want to punch Frank in this moment. (laughs) And Corky says, Tells him to not bully her. There's an entire sixth grade home economics class in Albuquerque, New Mexico, anxiously awaiting the transcript of my piece on the White House table settings. I think you're just going to have to wait your turn. And I love that there's a tiny little cheer that erupts from the audience for Corky sassing her way. (laughs) And Frank insists that it's actually more important for him. He has an Air Force engineer waiting to verify structural defects in the new fighter jet. And... Corky says, well, I guess you think that's important. Well, without her information, 17 little girls in Miss Homie's class won't know where to put a fish fork. Frank pauses and says, nah, too easy. (laughs) I also want to call out that the home ec teacher's name is Miss Homie. Oh, my God, that's right. (laughs) I was like, I was more focused on the fact that that they were teaching them how to place a high end table setting that it has a fish fork. Girl, we had that. Oh, you did? Oh, we didn't have that. Yes. I learned that from Pretty Woman. I had Woman. that course. No, I had a course about like high-end etiquette. Wow. And how to how to follow that when I go to Europe. I mean, my mother taught me some stuff. Because mm-hmm. my, I guess my grandmother had like a an official setting. But mostly I remember from Pretty Woman to count the prongs. I feel like a new generation of people uh, know that from Titanic. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't mm-hmm. super into that movie. Well, I feel like it was Pretty Woman taught a generation, and then Titanic came along and taught a generation. And I'm sure there, well, I don't know if there was a next movie that did that, but uh, I definitely learned it in home ec. Although we called it FCS, Family and Consumer Sciences. Ooh, interesting. Not home economics, because they were getting progressive, but I still had to learn how to set a table. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was co-ed, so hey, we're forward thinking. At this moment, Murphy appears in very soft colors today with a bow in her hair. So Murphy arrives and doesn't want to deal with the facts line. And I love the moments when Frank randomly sasses her. And so he goes, what do you think we're doing? Huddling around for warmth? Take a number. And right at that moment, Miles arrives. And Miles needs attention from everyone in the room. He has an important piece of business to discuss with them. It has to do with the fax machine. Yeah, says Murphy, they need another one. And he, well, Miles doesn't think so. Not after look, checking over these bills. And he begins to stroll around the bullpen. And he says, seems like some of us are using this piece of office machinery for our own personal use. For instance, apparently Marv's wife faxed him a grocery list. Murphy set up a basketball poll in 10 states. And everyone faxed the new Dan Quayle joke to Letterman. Ding. Bing. He insists it is a serious piece of office equipment. It is not a toy. And Murphy says one of my favorite lines in this episode, which is, okay, fine. The Xerox is not a toy. The paper shredder is not a toy. The mail chute is not a toy. What are we supposed to do about for fun around here, huh? The mail chute. Jim, for one. Hopefully it didn't like, throw a person down it. Big is the mail chute. Because if it's big enough, they definitely sent someone down it. Did they send Kyle down the mail chute? Oh, no. Oh, Kyle. 
Jim, for one, would be okay if they took the blasted thing from back to where it came from. And he says, what happened to the days when re a reporter had to actually leave the building to get his story? We didn't need one of these. We just grabbed a good old-fashioned Dixon Ticonderoga number one, and as far as I'm concerned, it's the still the best. Cheap, reliable, and you don't electrocute yourself when you take it into the bathtub. Oh, he's such your man, isn't he? Oh, he is. Also, can we talk about a Dixon Ticonderoga? Uh, sure. Do you, so you know which pencil this is, right? Well, it's the best kind. It's the non-soft. It's a hard kind of a pencil, right? It like oh. writes really well. Oh, but but Lauren, this is very important. He specifically says a number one. Oh, you, you talked so, about this. You talked about this in the first yes. episode and I forget. Oh, it, that means something. Uh-huh. So, and this is, uh, now I will say the thing I talked about is slightly different than the specific ty Dixon Ticonderogas. Okay. So there are B to H softness and hardness levels of a, of a pencil. Within the Dixon Ticonderoga, they have basically five levels of, of grades. And uh, it's similar to the, the official HB or BH, uh, HB or either one ends. But the one that everyone kind of talks about is a number two, a number two pencil. Yes. Oh, I uh, get that you. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what is the yep. number one? Why does it make it much better well, for Jim? So you assume, you assume listening to Jim talking that he wants like the hard pencil, correct? I thought, but you're, but that's wrong. That's a number two. That's what Murphy likes. No. So it goes from one, which is extra soft to four, which is extra hard. Oh, he wants a soft one. I hate the soft ones. He wants an extra soft pencil. She wants a soft, but not quite that one. But yeah, so Dixon Ticonderoga is famously one of those things where it, they made it their actual ad campaign to be the best pencil. Oh. On their website to this day, they refer to it as the world's best pencil. And part of that is because it became incredibly popular. Uh, part of the reason was the uh, type of graphite. Uh, so the name originates from the graphite ore discovered on Lead Mountain in 1815 and processed in Ticonderoga, New York. Oh, oh. Mm -hmm. It was starting to sound like an amusement park. Right. Uh, the company offers a number of brands, with, but the most well-known being the Ticonderoga, the yellow number two pencil. And it's known for its distinctive green and yellow ferrule, which is the part uh, at the top by the eraser. Yes. Roald Dahl began using them along with yellow-lined legal pads, whilst living in the U.S. and upon returning home to the U.K., had them specially shipped over for use in his writing shed. He had a, a writing shed? Of course he did, because he's Roald Dahl. That's true. <laughs> you know? Like, of course he did. But I just thought it was interesting. I was like, oh, yeah, the Dixon Ticonderoga. It's just it's such a specific memory and, and look. So Miles states he will say this one more time. It is for appropriate office use only. And while he says that, Grant Shod makes the choice to do the strangest lunge. <laughs> Did you notice that? I, I missed what the word. I'm sorry. Lunge? Lunge. Like he does a low lunge forward oh, God, down to one knee. That. He's at like a 45 degree angle, just kind of lunging toward the water cooler and then just stands up on. Is that understood? <laughs> it's so funny. Macho I don't know miles. why. I don't know why he's. It's not even a macho lunge, though. That's the thing. He kind of just almost planks on himself. It's just he's, this this whole scene, which is what makes <laughs> the payoff funny, is the fact that he's, you know, being a little dictator. Yeah, it's so funny. It's the weirdest choice. He's laying down the law in a way that Miles doesn't yeah. always do, but he, when he does it, yeah. it makes him feel like big and mighty. When I say it's the strangest or the weirdest lunge, I love it 
because it's just something that only someone who thinks that like anything they do is golden would do. So he's clearly in his like groove as a dictator right now. It's so strange and I love it. So everyone says, yes, smiles. And he says, carry on and begins to leave. It's finally Murphy's time to use the facts and it rings. There's something incoming. So she grabs the paper that comes out and wants to know what it's about and goes, Miles, I'm a little confused about something. Are love letters considered appropriate office use? And Miles whirls around to be like, didn't he just finish telling everyone? Because you got one from a secret admirer. Mm. Whole office. Ooh, which I love that you know it's led by Frank. <laughs> <laughs> like we just know. And Murphy begins reading. Dear Miles, you don't know me. We work in the same building and I often see you in the elevator. Miles tries to go for the piece of paper, but it's passed off to Frank. Who sa- I also love that this is the second episode in not very long that they're sharing reading of a paper. It's also such a great little comic trope to like play yeah. keep away with it. I mean, it's absolutely keep away. But the thing, like we just had an episode with the sponsorship where they're passing a piece of paper around and finishing the letter with each other, which I found just very amusing. Uh, so it's Frank's turn and he's reading. I've never done anything like this before, but I wasn't sure how to how else to approach you. And he starts like puckering with the way he's speaking miles goes for him funds over here we go and it gets handed off to corky i think you're very attractive i'd like to know all about you and see if perhaps we're soulmates miles lunges for corky behind the coffee give it and jim grabbing the paper from corky as she runs by him hey now this isn't the place for this he starts to walk it toward miles but reads and goes "Ooh, if you're interested please fax me back sincerely miss x Miles got a girlfriend. I love Jim. Miles is clearly embarrassed, confused, excited. He doesn't quite know. We don't know how he's feeling, but he he assumes it's a fake from Murphy and says, haha, I knew it from the start. And Murphy proclaims, Miles, it's definitely not me. Look at it. Yeah, if I didn't know There's any nothing better, in- I would think it was Murphy. Right. She says, there's nothing in there that says you meet her up on the roof wearing only red jockey shorts and high tops. There you go. (laughs) Which is true. It's too sweet for Murphy. Miles like shrugs it off saying, what kind of person would want to meet someone this way? Murphy says, well, you know, maybe it's the woman he's waited his whole life for, but the only way to find out is to use the fax machine and that's not office appropriate. (sighs) And Frank says, well, he guess she's just going to end up thinking Miles isn't interested. And Miles, still kind of wearing the bravado, crumples it up and says, well, he guesses that's what just happens when you have a high profile job like him. Besides, he hardly needs to respond to something like this to meet women and like tosses it into the wastebasket like he's like a, you know, fancy basketball player, man. And he looks at everyone and goes, what is this, a paid holiday? This is work. And they all start to shuffle off and Corky goes, heartbreaker. (laughs) And he watches them all walk away. He's very confident. He kind of leans toward what we know is like Frank's office in the studio. And he stretches and then he stretches the other way. And we realize he's stretching toward the wastebasket. And he reaches the letter right as someone dumps the coffee grounds on top of it. Of course. And we cut to. Probably the next day or a couple days later, Murphy gets off the elevator and is confronted by her secretary. Which is, I think, an uncomfortable joke. And I use joke in air quotes because Mm -hmm. this is all it is at the time. And we've spoken about this on the show before. 
that there is a uh, inclination in the uh, late 80s, early uh, 90s, even probably through the 70s, if you want to talk about MASH, of the joke of a, of a quote-unquote man in a dress. A wordage I am using because that is the wordage would have been used at the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can go. We need to go that much into it because we have talked about this in depth in later episodes. I'll put a link in the description for the episode if you would like to take a look at it and actually read an excerpt from Eddie Azard's biography. Although mm-hmm. I would warn people that when we recorded it, Eddie did prefer different pronouns than she prefers now. So please keep that in mind that that was a different time when we recorded it. So yes, I agree uh, that if if we hadn't talked about this and our, I, I guess what I will say is that I think of all of the things that have uh, not held up to the test of time. Uh, for me personally, this is one of the more uncomfortable joke spheres for me to to work my way around um, because it is very hard to to see it as the joke of the time without seeing through today's lens. Agreed. So. I'm I agree I think that had we not talked about this before we would definitely be talking about it right now based on this. I appreciate that uh for what it was it doesn't go beyond the visual gag. Agreed. And now even the visual gag wouldn't wouldn't be used um and I I am happy for the growth that we have achieved. And um if anybody wants any further resources or any further thoughts from us please let us know I'm happy to talk about this at length in a future episode or on the Patreon, um, it's worth talking about. And so I definitely recommend uh, accessing those resources. Same. I agree. And this one makes me more upset. Not that there's a degree of it, but this one feels more blatant. Yeah. And maybe that's why I feel like we've already spoken about it. And it's one of the few times on the show, like you said, where these kind of issues where I go, this is really kind of over the line for a modern audience to look at and mm-hmm. how I feel. And it's no one's fault. The people who wrote it, I know are. Yeah. We know their hearts. Yeah. Where their hearts are. And yeah. it, I feel like we've all grown with time and mm-hmm. this is not a, this is not a condemnation of uh, the people who wrote the show, just no. that it's a misstep in retrospect that we're not a fan of. And I think everyone would agree. Yes. I, based on our experience with the uh, creators and writers of the show, I have, no question that if this was being written now this joke would not have been in the show for that i appreciate it because i do i do trust them and their hearts in this work i mean this is only a couple years after bosom buddies Mm -hmm. and i don't think tom hanks would has even has said he wouldn't do that today yeah yeah so yes that happens and we move on and then Murphy goes into her office and Miles sneaks into the fax machine. We can tell by his body language that he obviously has a response to the letter. But of course, the fax machine is having issues. It's being very loud. Corky and Frank offer to help. But Miles does not want their help. Another sort of giveaway. Uh, Murphy comes out of her office because it's really loud. Miles lies that he's sending a letter to a man in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Jim comes in. He could hear it all the way down the hall. And he, he says, is this what we have to look forward to in the 21st century? <laughs> like, it's funny he says 21st because it is not that you know far away, but it feels like it was really far away at the time. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it is what you have to look forward to, my friend. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Jim has it. <laughs> Welcome. And, and Jim hits the side of the machine and it works. He fixes it, which is kind of the amazing thing that that's all he needed to do. Uh, he lets everyone know that last year he made a spice rack for Doris. 
My favorite part is the lead in the, I've always been mechanically adept. <laughs> We're all like, no, Jim, no, no one thinks that. No, just, just a look, I guess. <laughs> so Miles shoes everybody away, but Murphy pretty much gives away that she knows the letter is from Miss X because she learned how to read upside down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would actually probably come in handy as a reporter to be able to read upside down. That's exactly what I thought when she's like, yeah, it's a skill, but, you know, I have many skills kind of thing. And I was like, that would be super useful yeah, in the field. Very, very helpful. Uh, Frank calls Miles a faxanova. That made me so happy. I laughed out loud. I too. And I was, I was like, little sitcom hand clap. <laughs> Chef's kiss and cheesiness, Frank. Love mm, it. Well done. Uh, so it ends up that Miles was sending her his resume. <laughs> and that he doesn't know how to impress a woman in 50 words or less, which is interesting because, you know, that's kind of what people are doing on most social media. Uh-huh. And then pretty much what follows is everybody giving Miles advice about what a woman wants. Uh, Jim says a woman wants security, a diverse portfolio with decent pension, a money market fund, uh, so that when he drops dead at 50, after you've worked like a dog your whole life, she'll know that she will be well taken care of and goes into a tirade about how his wife, who we now guess is probably Doris, is going to uh, meet someone young. Uh, and have a midlife crisis and marry him, and then all of his money is going to go to this probably pool boy. Which is interesting because Jim is in his 50s, so does he think he's going to drop yeah. dead soon? <laughs> I feel like Jim is always nervous that's about to happen. Perhaps, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, he lost his parents young. He talks a lot about death when he talks about them. True. Frank says that uh, women want someone who's sensitive, you know, that he should confess to something vulnerable, uh, lie about something, say that he cried reading Anna Karenina, that the best part of sex is holding each other afterwards. Uh, Murphy says that it's literally frightening by the glimpse into the male brain. Uh, Corky <laughs> says that uh, it's romance that women want. Miles, you know, has to be sort of an old fashioned guy. You know, maybe expensive jewelry is appropriate. So Murphy says that she's a pro with this and just starts writing and everyone's sort of chiming in, you know, how they should start everything from dear to dearest. I mean, no one can make up their mind. Murphy says that you right away, you have to say that it takes a lot of courage for someone like her to write a letter so that it doesn't come across too aggressive, that, you know, it sort of puts her at ease. Murphy says, you know, that he should say what car he drives and how large his shoes are. Corky is disgusted. But by now, Murphy... Fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's also kind of the the second hand joke this season from Frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murphy's pretty much halfway done and has gone in a witting, charming direction. Man, they all begin to fight. And, and Miles tells them that he's decided that it's a mistake. This isn't how people start a relationship. And I think, oh, oh, Miles, that is how people start oh, a relationship nowadays. That's absolutely how they do, Miles. And everyone sort of agrees that they're just going to all go back to work. And then we cut to. We're back in the bullpen. I'm assuming, uh, well, actually, based on information we get later, it's probably been a couple days. And Frank is chatting very in very close proximity with, do you know which office worker that was he was talking to? No, I, I keep forgetting. We got to make a chart. I know it's so bad. I was like, oh, crap. I know his name. <laughs> but he's chatting with office worker number. I'm sorry. And the fax machine rings. Murphy comes bursting out saying very quickly that it's for her. And this is the great outfit that we love. This like orange blazer oh, that has a couple awesome oh, stripes on it. She's got tortoise glasses, some gold earrings. She looks amazing. 
Also, the fit of that blazer is wonderful and I want it. But she's insisting it's for her. He doesn't need to grab it. And Frank's already picked it up and says, no, I don't think so. Unless you looked particularly cute yesterday coming out of the men's room cleaning your glasses. (laughs) This must be from Miles' secret admirer, the little tiger wrote her back. I had to put two A's on the back because he definitely extended it just long enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Murphy takes it from him and says, no, Frank, it's for me. She said she wrote her back and signed it as Miles. Ooh, Murphy. Oh, Murphy. And she's making her way over to the secretary's desk. She just apparently sits there sometimes. And Frank says that, oh, this time she's gone too far. She better pick up some 25 sunblock because she's going straight to hell. I do like that joke. (laughs) 25 sunblock. That kills me. That was a good joke. And she's like, but it was a challenge sitting there. And she's not going to say no to a challenge. And Frank asks if she's planning on telling him about this or is he going to find out at the wedding? And Murphy ignores him because, oh, is she she good or what? This woman is hooked. And Frank makes his way around to look at the paper. At that moment, our hero Miles arrives. He's still got a bit of that bop in his step. He's feeling good this week. And he tells Murphy uh, he just screened her piece on the IRS. I think we should all use fake names on the credits this week. (laughs) Uh, Murphy stands up and... Frank is like at this point in the background, he's like touching his face, rubbing his neck. He's so uncomfortable. <laughs> I kept be, I kept watching what Joe Regabuto was choosing to do in the background <laughs> this entire section. And Murphy stands up and invites Miles into her office to talk about the piece and other things. Miles is immediately suspicious. What what other things? Why are you being so nice to me? Frank is cringing behind them trying to sneak by and Miles tries to reach and grab and pull him in through the door frame as he's being ushered inside with Frank, don't you want to join us? And Frank slips by with a bye and waves. <laughs> this is when we first got a sliver of the dartboard. It eventually says doctor does not bill insurance. Which is very timely at this very moment. Yeah, do you want to explain that? So I assume that this means that you have to pay the whole thing out of pocket, mm-hmm. which is a total scam. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So Murphy says, Miles, have a seat. Make yourself uncomfortable once the door is shut. Miles is very uncomfortable and says, no, thank you. He'll stand. And Murphy begins to massage her way into this topic. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I love that's a really great way to say it. <laughs> right. She's like. Remember that secret admirer who wrote to you? Well, there's been an interesting development in that area. And then she like clearly has to get away from him. So she starts to circle back behind her own desk and says, let me just preface this with saying that I've done something, something people don't usually expect of Murphy Brown, (laughs) a warm and caring gesture, a reaching out, sort of giving type of thing, somewhere between fairy godmother and saintliness. Miles is just suspicious he looks confused and suspicious and just says what have you done murphy i wrote miss x back and signed your name this i'm not even going to do a grant shod in hysterics voice but i will say he truly hits his like favorite octave in this section (laughs) like you all know the miles voice we're talking about what you wrote her a letter well not a letter (laughs) Murphy may have written 16 letters and she pulls out a stack of paper. These are hers. And these are the copies of the ones you sent. Miles starts, stares at them in front of him, starts ranting. He can't believe this. This was an invasion of privacy, a destruction of trust, a moral and legal injustice, and just a little sick. 
And honestly, Murphy is surprised. She thought she was doing him a favor. This Uh. is when Miles truly hits the upper decimal. Look at this. Just look. Look. And then all of a sudden he starts reading them and says, she likes me. I know. She says I'm the best man she's ever had facts with. I love the little laugh he does when he reads that. Yes. Like it is the best line of the show. It's best line of the episode. And it's only the best line because of the way Grant delivers it. Yes. Because he doesn't add sex underneath it. It's so it's oh it's so it's such a there's a phrase that one of my uh one of my acting teachers once told me, which is don't put vanilla on vanilla. Mm. So if something is big, don't do it big. Do it simply because it's already big. So the idea of like the best man she's ever had facts with is clearly a sexual innuendo. So if you say it's sexy, it's obvious. The way he says it makes it work so well. But it's a li- and it's but it is a little flirty, and it's also he's impressed with himself, yes. even though he didn't write it. Like it's got so many yes. layers to it. It's so good, but it doesn't it doesn't lead with sleaze, and therefore it is so good. Yeah. Oh, it's great. And she Murphy starts to say, look at Tuesday's letter, third paragraph, and he shuts her down. Hey, I'm funny. Philosophical, too. People who are afraid to rock the boat have no business being in the boat in the first place. I like me. (laughs) (laughs) And she just, she's already, she's now sat on the desk in front of me. She goes, what can I say, Miles? You have a way with words. And he says, hey, she's good, too. And quotes her, accidents are a fool's explanation for destiny. Deep. Real deep. What I also love about this scene is that it's such a great structure because those lines become so important mm-hmm. later on. But in this exactly. scene, they're not just said to be said. They're said because they're feeding what's going on. And yes. As well as then later on just happening happen to be used for exposition in a way like to or actually, yeah. not exposition, but to like to sort of put the key into the rest of the plot. And so it's, I think it's very yeah. smart. Well, and what's great about it is that they are really good lines. And so they are the type of thing that you would pull out of reading over something. Yeah. And then remember and later on so that when it comes up, mm-hmm. you are on Murphy's page by going, wait a second. Uh-huh. I've heard Because that you before. love, like, accidents are a fool's explanation for destiny is something that you would remember. Mm-hmm. And then he, uh, Miles asks her, what three people does he want to be stranded on an island with? And she says, Albert Einstein, William Shakespeare, and Sarah Lee. Because if you're stuck on a desert island with a couple of dead guys, you might as well enjoy yourself. That's so. And he laughs. A sense of humor. That's important to him. (laughs) Okay, I just have to share a pet peeve. Okay. When people say stuck on a desert island. Okay. Because it's a deserted island. Like it's been deserted. You're right. Not a desert island. But, But it's one of those things that everyone says. Oh, you're right. Oh, that's so funny. Like it's a oh what's it what's the phrase I was thinking of the other day that it's just something oh um I could care less yes everyone says it it's in pop culture like we're so used to saying it because it's been accepted in its incorrect form mm-hmm. like but technically the question is you've been deserted on an island what would you have not just that the island is a desert island like you could be on a desert island but not deserted what do they say in Gilligan's Island oh I don't remember. Because I wonder if that's what put it into the vernacular. Probably. You know, it's what, and it's, but yeah, and I'm sure like etymologically, and I should have looked into this pet peeve before I spoke it into existence because I'm sure I'm going to get schooled, but I'm sure etymologically it, it works either way. 
But for my brain, the premise is that you've been deserted on an island. It's a deserted island. Sure. So no, that makes something. sense. So that's the I'm question. always like, I get it. I get it. But I'm just being obnoxious. Anyway. <laughs> so Miles wants to know, when does he write her next? And Murphy says, oh, tonight. She wants to meet you at Phil's. And Miles immediately starts hyperventilating, as our Miles does. He says, it's moving so fast. He's not sure if he's ready for it. And Murphy says, he better be. She's smart and funny and exciting. And I've worked too hard for you to let her get away. And he goes, she's right. He has to meet her. After all, he's the kind of guy who, and he looks down and consults his page, chooses to embrace life and all its experiences. Murphy does not look uh, confident. (laughs) And we cut to Murphy's townhouse. Which was not where I thought we were going to go next. So I kind of love that no. this scene is here because I thought we were going to go straight to the date. Yes, I thought it was going to be date and then denouement. Yeah, and uh, Miles runs into Murphy's townhouse with a full-on suitcase. <laughs> He's supposed to be meeting Ms. X in 20 minutes at Phil's and he doesn't know what to wear. He feels like boring man in beige slacks. And he he does this thing that I don't even know if I can do it justice. And if I if I cut a clip from it, it wouldn't make sense because you have to look at it. Just go to you do. Just I'm gonna try to explain it, guys. But like, just go to the the, the Instagram. The, the clip will be there. I promise you. Because I promise it, it will not do it justice. But pretty much, he is he has made each level of the suitcase like it is a level of a cake, and it is themed. <laughs> It's so good. It's so good. So good. And the, they must have worked on this like a little dance so mm-hmm. well. And and also it was written because Grant Shot is such a wonderful physical comedian. But he opens up the suitcase and he goes, am I a sweater guy? And there are three different kinds of sweaters. Mm-hmm. Is he a V-neck cardigan or a crew neck? She goes, crew neck. He throws the crew neck back. He th- well, he... He throws all the sweaters away and keeps it. I th- like he just he gets rid of the layers so quickly. Sometimes you don't even know who he's he's getting rid of them. It's so well rehearsed. Yeah. Then it's like shoes. I watched this and I'm like, this scene was so well rehearsed. So well done. And he just he just tosses them and then it's shoes, lace ups, loafers, or running shoes. Murphy says running shoes. Then it's then it's pants, khakis, corduroy jeans. <laughs> and then he realizes that Murphy is just picking the last thing that he lists in every single category. <laughs> Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, although she doesn't like anything, she's anything without tassels. She's not a fan of tassels, apparently. I, I would agree with Murphy. Not not a huge fan of the loafers with the tassels. Not really a fan of loafers, but that's very Miles. I love loafers with tassels. And there's no, I used to have nothing a pair, wrong with that. but it works because I'm a female identifying person. Like it looks, it looks like a cute like menswear choice if I wear them. I can see why men would not want to wear them anymore. Yeah, and and apparently it's something that Murphy does not like. Um, So Eldon appears. In men, I meant. In men, Murphy doesn't like it in men. But she's very particular. I I, I forget if it's her or her mother who doesn't like men who have the loops with the belts that are open. (gasps) Right. I forget if it's... I think it's something that Avery says, but it's very specific. So it sounds like, you know, mother and daughter. So Eldon appears and asks if Miles is moving in because he should warn him. She won't cook. She won't clean. And I'm pretty sure her last boyfriend is buried under the porch, which is a great Eldon joke. Yep. Uh, Murphy says that Miles has a date and he's embarrassing his gender. Aww. Eldon tries to unbutton Miles' shirt, <laughs> thinking that maybe that'll help. Then he realizes that it doesn't and he needs to put it all back. When Miles finds out what's going on, 
he feels that he's a very courageous young lad because, you know, uh, this woman could be, and this is quoting Eldon, a dog. Uh, Eldon's still not the feminist that we remember him as. He's still throwing yeah. in a couple of lines, not as much as he was in in season one, but that... Yeah, this one I'm kind of like, all right, fine. Yeah, or nuts. She could carry a knife. He remembers once in Florida. And then Murphy just pretty much wants to get him out of there, you know, asks him to leave before the paint settles. Uh, but he leaves one piece of advice, which is um, if he goes to a place, make a note of the nearest exit and to never take off his shoes. <laughs> and and then Miles just sort of kind of gives up. He feels that this is pointless because he feels that he can't live up to those letters. And he asks Murphy to quiz him, which exactly like she sprung this on him and he has to memorize all of this stuff. I mean, I could never remember all of these fake details for sure. I don't know Mm-mm. how she thinks they're going to make any kind of conversation. But what's really lovely is that then they have kind of a moment where Murphy reminds him that, you know, before the letters, she had a crush on him. And that no matter mm-hmm. and that no matter what happens, he is good enough. Yeah, he is. It's really very sweet. And you know, he sees he's being ridiculous. He went to Harvard. He runs a major news network. He did the Capital One K. Yeah. He just wishes that Murphy hadn't told her that he sang backup on We Are the World. <laughs> That is such a specific joke of a specific time. I love it so much. Yeah. I mean, listen, there were so many famous people singing on We Are the World. Yes. Anyone that was a have... good reference for a while. You could just disappear in the background and someone might believe you. I mean, you get Bette Midler, Latoya Jackson. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, you could have referenced that recording well into the 2000s. Oh, you think so? That's good to know. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. When we Oh, when we cut to... Uh, we are in Phil's, y'all. It's time. Miles is sitting at the hero table, and Murphy walks in the door. Hi, Miles. Miles immediately crumples. What are you doing? I'm self-conscious enough. Go away. Go. And I love that Murphy does a very, like, like East Coast mom moment, which is, oh, well, nice attitude. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> after she drove all this way to save him from a shoe mistake. Here, these are better. And she pulls out a pair of shoes for him and puts them on the table. Miles, I love that Miles immediately is like, she's right. Okay. So he immediately starts changing his footwear in the middle of the restaurant <laughs> and apologizes. He puts them on and goes, hey, hey, these are better. And he does a little like dance shuffle around the front of the table and then to immediately start guiding her out. And what I love is he starts guiding her out. She stops very suddenly, turns and is very close to his face with a completely ridiculously wicked grin. <laughs> and she goes, I want to watch Miles. Uh, ah, this one has some great ep- some gr- this episode has some great lines and a lot of it is just oh, the delivery God. that moment she like became the watch. cheshire cat oh i want to i want to watch my house it's Miles. so evil i love it so much so she's good. so wicked uh he does his normal oh geez and she says she won't say anything she'll sit where he cannot see her but he wouldn't be there without her okay fine so he starts to walk back and Phil arrives. Hey, so tonight's the big night. <laughs> Miles goes, so it's in the post now. Seriously. And Phil's, yeah. I mean, but Phil knows everything. He what does. are we supposed to do? I know. And Phil says, hey, don't take it so seriously. It's not like your whole future is resting on this one date. Murphy's standing behind Phil and pokes him in the back. And so he shifts a little bit and goes, although this woman may be the one, Murphy pokes him again. What the hell are you doing, Murphy? I'm just trying to give the guy some encouragement. It's not like he's any good at this. Oh, God. 
And so they're arguing about Miles is just like melting in his chair. And <laughs> Phil goes, remember when he came in here with that Jackie woman and she was, and he gestures to show how tall Jackie was. And he laughs so hard he, until Murphy has to poke him again. And he says, I can't take it anymore. You're on your own, Miles. But let me just say this. You did the right thing coming to meet her here. You're looking for romance. Phil's definitely the place to find it. And from the back, hey, Phil, the toilet's backed up again. Coming. What gets me about this interchange is that mm-hmm. the Jackie reference is from season one. And I love yeah. the show, but they very rarely do references from past episodes. And uh-huh. that one really got me. I was like, oh, wait, that's a real, that, that's, that's, yeah. that's from season one. That's, that's, I was like, Jackie. Yeah. I'm very impressed that the show did that because I, I like that one show's reference, you know, and me too. I, I was very excited about that. Yeah, I was th- also because it's Susie Plaxton. So, you know, the toilet's backed up again. Phil, after announcing the romance, heads back to fix it. And as they sit there, the door opens and Lois Lane appears, everybody. Or, I'm sorry, Madeline Stilwell, a.k.a. Miss X, played by one Terry Hatcher. Which many people may also know from Desperate Housewives. So we're obviously, we're not going to go into all of Terry Hatcher. Terry Hatcher has a very prolific career. Uh, she has been around f- forever. I mean, not forever. She's not very old. But she started in 1985 in The Love Boat. And she has done everything from Love Boat to Karen's Song uh, to MacGyver, Quantum Lee. Oh, favorite thing. I definitely knew her. My connection with her was Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. She was my Lois Lane as a child. And of course, then she really shot up in the 2000s as one of the Desperate Housewives for 180 episodes. Yeah. That is no small thing. If you go on our Patreon, you can hear uh, Jesse gush how much she loves Terry Hatcher over and over again. Yes. That's why we're going to keep it short today, because I have definitely geeked out enough for poor Terry's comfort. It's just funny because I'm editing that right now. And I was like, oh, wait, uh, Jesse has to do this because I know how much she loves I Terry love Hatcher. Her. Yeah. <laughs> she's just everywhere. I love her. But I mean, we just have to say like, in this point, she's like in her young 20s. And she's so beautiful. Oh, stunning. It's, it, yeah, it's just it's arresting. She's so beautiful she's that perfect like late 80s early 90s hair it's big but it's not too big she's in this great you know black dress with white at the lapel but it's got a lapel for f's sake it looks like it might be velvet she look i mean she just looks like a bombshell and she has a perfect mix of being a bombshell but having that kind of like that 90s it makes me think of like renee zellweger and like empire records where it's like that like plump young face Mm -hmm. but still sexy she's gorgeous and of course, when they see Madeline Stillwell, Miss X, uh, Miles shoots out of his chair, which, fair. Yeah. And also his type. she makes her way. Exactly. She... I w- We might as well have had Jane Leaves walk in. Pretty much, yeah. Which I remember watching this episode and I knew, I knew that Jane Leaves wasn't in this episode, but I secretly really wanted her to return in this episode. <laughs> that would have been really funny. I wanted her to be Miss X. <laughs> Uh, but that's I can't fix that Uh, so Miles reaches out to shake her hand first introduces himself as Miles Sliverberg then readjusts back to Miles Silverberg Murphy is introduced and with and Murphy was just about to not be here bye Murphy (laughs) and Murphy walks her way over she starts to leave and then just sits down at the corner of the bar which even crueler because she's absolutely within his sight yeah (laughs) 
And she just sits with her back to the bar and crosses her legs and prepares to watch. And they sit. Miles says, you know, first dates usually feel so awkward, but I feel like we already know each other. And I have to say, Miles is so comfortable in this moment. He is. I was so impressed. I think it's because of Murphy's speech. Mm -hmm. She likes him already. And usually mm -hmm. Miles is uncomfortable in these kind of situations because he's nervous that they don't like him. Exactly. And so he says that wonderful line. And then she goes, yeah. <laughs> and they just sit there for a beat. Also, I have to say, as a Terry Hatcher fan, the voice she puts on as this character. I mean, this is what and I I I, ha I have to use this word for the simplest explanation, but she does kind of a bimbo voice. Yeah. No, and uh, it's, which is not very Terry Hatcher. It's not her at all. I mean, I, I <laughs> which well done. I think that in Quantum Leap, because she was playing this sort of sweet co-ed in the '60s, there are points mm -hmm. when her voice gets a little kind of like, "Oh, hi," you know, because it's mm -hmm. kind of the character she's playing. She's very angelic in the sense of the story because she's Sam's, you know, true love. Um, mm -hmm. But this is the only time I've seen her play a character like this, which is why I think it's so impressive. Not because she's not usually very good, but because we usually see her play, you know, Seinfeld, Desperate Housewives, someone who's a little yeah. stronger and smarter. Yeah, exactly. And, she, and the great thing about a good performer is like, if you're very smart, you can play simple very, yes. very effectively. Mm -hmm. So there's this lovely beat and he goes, so we work in the same building. She says, yeah, but she works in the claims departments at, at Blue Cross. He goes, oh, that's very interesting. Not really. I just listen to people whine about their health problems all day. Have you ever been divorced? <laughs> no. Have you? Sure. <laughs> I love that the answer is sure. Sure. It's so specific. And then they just, it's so, and then no explanation. That's what I love about her. She either takes a non-related sentence and turns it into something really off base, like the health problems all day. Have you ever been divorced? Or they're just like monosyllabic confusing things. So there's another dot, dot, dot happening. And he says that he likes her hair very much. What's that supposed to mean? This is the moment I wrote. Do you remember the musical? I love you. You're perfect. Now change. Uh, I know of it. I never saw it, but I know it was a really, it was, it was done a lot in regional theater. Yes. It's very popular and it's got a lot. It's basically, you know, kind of a story cycle of a bunch of not connected solos or duets or sometimes group songs. And they're all these different uh, love stories. And one of them has a song called A Stud and a Babe. And it's two incredibly nerdy people who go out on a first date. And they keep kind of dissociating and breaking out of the date to say what they would say if they were a stud or if they were a babe. Interesting. And then they come back and then they're like this and they're talking really weird. And then they stand up and they have these like really like sexy big voices. That's all I feel like this scene <laughs> is. <laughs> it's like what they wish they were versus what they actually are. <laughs> Which is kind of the, I guess, the the difference between them and the people sitting at the bar. Yeah. I mean, it's the Cyrano and Bergerac thing that's happening. Yes. And and the two Cyranos meet each other. Uh, sorry, spoiler, we're not there yet. So he says it, it doesn't mean anything. It's a compliment. She's very pretty. And she says, I hate being pretty. Guys are afraid to approach you. You end up staying home all night, eating junk food and worrying about all that ozone layer stuff. And Miles looks up at the ceiling <laughs> and she says, the world's a disgusting mess. Why bother living? And then just sits there <laughs> and he says, would you like to see a menu? Sure. 
<laughs> she's her. really good in this. You kind of see how she got the part because yeah, I, she's hilarious. She's really hilarious. She gets it, and I can't imagine yeah. anyone else auditioning like this. Yeah, it's you have to be so smart to get this character. You have to be so smart. And we cut over to Murphy, who is just constantly craning back and forth on her stool to see around people to see what's happening. And the guy behind her says, he doesn't mean to be rude, but could she sit still? It's very annoying. She turns around and goes, Chad's down the street, lots of empty booths, knock yourself out. And he kind of half grins at her and says, gee, I didn't know this place had a bouncer. Well, now, you know, and she turns around and he goes, my fault. I mistook this as a civilized planet. Hey, accidents happen. And then he says, no, accidents are a fool's explanation for destiny. And you see the light bulb in Murphy's ahead. Uh-huh. Now, before we continue, this actor I was very excited to see. Lauren, did you want to talk about it? I do. I love this actor so much. And he's one of those faces that I think that people know, but probably don't know his name. And he still and voices works. and voice uh, Richard Mazur. Uh, he's a New York native. He went to Yale School of Drama and he actually served two terms as the president of the Screen Actors Guild from 1995 to 1999. Awesome. Now, I can't figure out what I first knew him from. I just have a warm feeling when I look at him. I think Oh, I can tell you it's it's my girl for me. That's My Girl, which is absolutely one of my favorite things he's done. Yep. Um, my Girl and My Girl too. But I feel like I watched him when I was like in kindergarten in a lot of these like 70s reruns. I don't think I watched yes. One Day at a Time, which he was a series regular on. I at f- first got him confused for a second with an actor from My Sister Sam and realized that's not him. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just like, I don't know what I saw him in first, but I have a warm feeling when I think about him. He was I will definitely say I I definitely saw him in things before My Girl, but my brain knows him from My Girl. Oh, like that's what I recognize yeah. I mean, he, him from. And being Dan Aykroyd's brother is such great uh-huh. casting. Same thing in Transparent. Oh God, yes. You know, it's yeah. uh, he's a wonderful actor. He was in Heartburn. I think a lot of people know him from Risky Business, mm-hmm. Picket Fences. He was in Rhoda, L.A. Law. Uh, he's in the pilot of Blossom, although he wasn't in the series, but he played oh. her uncle. Yeah. Um, he made his debut in an episode of All in the Family. Also, which we've mentioned on the show before, he is in the Tim Curry TV movie of It. Mm-hmm. He plays Stanley. Um, and he's also directed a couple episodes of Picket Fences in the Wonder Years. And he's done tons of theater. He's worked at Long Wharf, Williamstown Theater Festival. Um, he last appeared on Broadway in 2004, the play Democracy. He's also done stuff at Playwrights Horizon, Mike Lee's 2000 Years, The New Group. But the last time he was in a play in New York was 2007. Funny enough, when I was looking for research on him, the day I was looking for research, some article came out called Whatever Happened to Richard Mazur? Well, he's still working. Orange is the New Black, Younger, The Good yep. Wife, The Good Fight. I think I also have a fond memory of him as the dad in License to Drive, which is one of the Corey movies. Oh, right. I love that one. That's one of my favorite Corey movies. Not that I'm a huge Corey fan, but you couldn't be if you grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Um, I call the Corys. It, it's a classic. So, yeah, it's just amazing how you just sort of have seen someone your whole life, and that's Richard Mazur. Anyway, I ship this. Oh, my God. I ship it so hard. I understand that this is a one-off, 
but I so wish that this guy came back. The way they look at each other, yeah. when, like the way he looks at her when he, the way she looks at him, like, okay, let's, let's continue. Because when this moment, when she realizes they are framed so theatrically, it's so great because we get both of their reactions because she's turned out and we are downstage, quote unquote. So we see her realize it. We see the way he's staring at her, like the tension the tension you can cut with a knife. It is so good. We're watching it play over both of their faces. They're both such good actors that you see a full story happening every line. And she turns around and says, where did you hear that? And he says, I didn't hear it anywhere. It's mine. And if she wants to use it, she has to pay a royalty. And she turns back out and we see her think about it. And she, she says, you know, it just occurred to me. And she proceeds to quote the boat statement from earlier. And he turns and shocks and looks at her. And she has this great smile on her face because she knows what she's doing. And he's looking at her and he just leans forward and says that he read someplace that chocolate is proof of God's love-hate attitude toward mankind. And she says, when she dies, she wants to be buried at sea off the Martha Vineyard's ferry. He asks her, you ever wonder who you might want to be stranded on a desert island with? She begins the quote about Albert Einstein, William Shakespeare, and Sarah Lee, and he finishes with her in tandem. She turns, they grin at each other, and shake hands. It is so sexy. It's really very sexy, actually. It's so good. I was like, whoa! Like, I would put him on my top five favorite people that Murphy has most likely dated. Yes. And they don't even really it's go so, on it. Like, we don't see anything after that. It's like, exactly. oh. oh, the meeting of the minds is so good. And it's just like, it's such equals. Like, that's what's so great about it. They're such equals already in a way that we don't see outside of like Jerry and Jake. Even in uh, one of my favorite date episodes with Avery, mm -hmm. she, I mean, she's supposed to, but she doesn't have much chemistry with that guy. Yeah. It's very rare that she has chemistry with with men i have to say even yeah. though candace working because it could have chemistry with anyone and the episodes yeah. are still enjoyable mm -hmm. but the two of them just sort of have this fire it's i think it's an art imitating life thing like i don't think many men in those scenarios actually knew how to hold up against a murphy brown yeah no of course because she was iconic and she was unique like a unique character to be acting opposite also murphy has a thing for jewish men so you know she sure does we cut back to uh miles and madeline and she says that he's nothing like his letters and he goes what what, what does she mean uh he's just like them like how about how about that wolfgang mozart <laughs> so convincing and she says she expected him to be more assertive but maybe that's good though to tell you the truth i didn't get most of what you were talking about anyway and then she says, you know, if we're going to make this work, I'm going to need you to be more nurturing. Can you do that? <laughs> and, he's, and he goes, I don't know. And I want to be like, Miles, yes, you can. Yes, you can, buddy. And she says, most men can't. Her last boyfriend was like that. Very, dis very cold, dispassionate, actually. You didn't say how intimate you like to get on the first date. <laughs> it's just so sudden. I love her. And we cut back to the bar. At the bar, Murphy and Ghostwriter, now named Ben. Are oh, hitting it his off. name is Ben. His name is Ben. 
And he's saying he's shocked that she didn't include that in her letters. And she said, and she says she didn't think it was appropriate for Miles to be in a steam bath with Phyllis Schlafly in the first place. They weren't her letters, remember? <laughs> yes, take down Phyllis. He said he's so relieved it wasn't someone named Miles Silverberg that he was attracted to. And so is Murphy. He says apparently Madeline fought him every step of the way. She constantly had doubts. Murphy grins and looks over at them and says, oh boy, they're going to be perfect for each other. And then he leans in because she's staring at them again. And we're back in this wonderful framing of him being over her shoulder and her looking forward. I really love that. Oh, it's so good. And he says, how would you like to go somewhere for a dinner of pancakes and bacon? You know, those thin kind of pancakes that are brown at the edges? Then go for a drive with a top down to Chesapeake Bay to a little club where they play all the oldies and dance till we drop. Then go home and sit by the fire and watch a tape of Fellini's The White Sheik. She says, you read my mind. And he touches her arm and they stand up to go. Oh, and he says, should we tell him? She looks at them, says, what, and ruin their date? And kind of throws her hand like a nah. And they head out the door. And the last thing we see is Miles looking absolutely miserable at the table while Madeline turns, throws her hair back, touches something on the back of her neck and says, do you think I should get this lanced? <laughs> and that's that's our tale today. <laughs> I feel like that she's um, divorced because men marry her because she's so beautiful. And then once they get married, they realize that she's very strange and yes, doesn't really have much to talk about. Which, you know what, justice, justice for Madeline, like both sides of the coin, it does suck to be judged on your looks and not given a second to be seen for who you actually are. That's, yeah, that's the only thing that she says that has real substance to it. I yeah. don't want to discount it's real. that. That's, that's really very, very true. And I, and that's something that Candace writes about in her book, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, you don't know if people like you for you, but unlike Candace, it sounds like she was never able to develop any kind of personality. Mm -hmm. It's it's a really interesting character because not only does she have these sort of non sequiturs, and she's not just dumb, because the things she's inappropriate, and yeah, and also defensive, and you don't usually see all that in one person. Usually, the character like that in a one scene at the end, which is a punchline to a joke, is either going to mm -hmm. be really aggressive. Or I, I shouldn't even make a, a statement. It's either one way or the other. It's black and white. And and that's what makes yeah. it sort of the date from hell, I think, is because she just, she's really all over the place. Yeah. But this was a really- She contains all of the multitudes in one conversation. Yeah. It's it's really creative, actually. And I, I enjoy this episode more than I thought I did. Remembering back, I it's not an episode I would watch a lot. But that mm -hmm. being said- I think I would enjoy it more if it was just Ben and Murphy. Yeah. Oh, man. That was... I honestly... I want to see their date, or I want to, like... I know. Oh. I just want to see more of them talking. Same. I mean, that's there is, though, there's something great about the fact that I'm left wanting more, which I have to give them credit for, yeah. because it's, it's, it's about that late reveal and the promise of what could have been. So... And casting someone who's a leading man... Yeah. So, you know, oh, you man, think I want to go watch my girl now. Yeah, <laughs> he's so sweet in that movie. He's just he just seems like someone who just is a kind person. Yeah, and the second one when he's like the father. Oh. Yeah. Man. Oh, Richard. I love the 90s. <laughs> 
On that note, if you love the 90s, are you following us on social media? Because there's so much you can do. You can see clips to enhance the episodes because for copyright mm -hmm. reasons, we can't really play them in the episode. Uh, mm -hmm. You can see pictures. You can interact with us. Uh, or if you want to be private, you can send us an email and tell us what you like or you don't like. We're at murphybrownpod at gmail.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at murphybrownpod. And we'll see you next week for another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Facts or fiction? Facts or fiction? Facts or fiction? Facts or fiction? Murphy Brown! Murphy! Murphy Brown! Close the door! He gives good facts. It's my favorite part of this episode.